Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would go to me, or go with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We'll pick up in verse 17. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17, and we'll make our way through verse 24, Lord willing, this morning. Hear the word of the living God. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And so, Father, we say again, speak, Lord, that we would hear what the Spirit says to the church. And we ask that you would help us to see the glory of Christ even in his darkest hour of the crucifixion. And may we rest in the providence of God as we see, Lord, that you have and did ordain the death of Your Son that we might believe and have eternal life. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. After many weeks of studying uh, Jesus' arrest and His six trials, we have finally made our way to the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in some sense, we have been waiting for over six years to make it to this point in John's Gospel. The crucifixion, in many ways, is the climax of the Gospels. And rightly so. I've heard it said that the Gospels are crucifixion narratives with uh, extended introductions. And I do want to say that in a few weeks, when we get to verse 30, where Jesus says from the cross, it is finished. Uh, we are going to spend probably three weeks or more unpacking what was accomplished in Jesus' life and death. And we're going to linger there for a while because there really is just so much to unpack and deal with. And so my focus today largely will not be on what Christ accomplished on the cross for us, nor will it be on the suffering of Christ on the cross. But just keep in mind that we are going to get there And we are going to linger there for quite some time. Today, I want to argue that every detail, every single detail 
of Jesus' crucifixion works exactly according to the providence of God. One of John's primary purposes in this Gospel, and especially in the crucifixion section, is to show that Jesus' death on the cross has been carried out in full accordance with God's will. That's a focus that John has and that Jesus has willfully submitted to that will. However, because we have seen this theme so much already, I want to really focus on making personal applications. So in other words, what do we do with these truths? What do we do with the fact that God has ordained His Son's death? How do we respond to that in our own lives? And so without any further introduction, let's jump right in. Beginning in verse 17, it says that they took Jesus and He went out. This is one of those verses that we might just kind of read over as if it's just kind of detail that's there, but uh, we need to consider this. You know, let this land on you. They took Jesus and He went out. The verb there is exertiamai. It's the same word that we saw back in 18.1 at the beginning of the betrayal and arrest scene. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, He went out. Same word with his disciples across the brook Kidron. And it says that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Jesus didn't flee Jerusalem and run away when he knew that it was in Judas's heart to betray him. He didn't run from his life. He went out on his own admonition to the place where Judas knew that he would be. And then in 18.4, when Jesus is confronted by the band of soldiers, the word is used here again. And John Mark taught on this in depth a few weeks ago, but let me remind us of what it says. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. It's the same word. And said to them, whom do you seek? And so where, where am I going with all of this? Well, John's message is clear. Jesus does not flee His betrayer. He goes to His betrayer. Jesus does not flee His arrest. He initiates it. And here, in chapter 19, after Pilate agrees to have Jesus crucified, although innocent, Jesus went out and began the walk to Calvary. He didn't argue his case. He didn't go out kicking and screaming and have to be dragged up the hill by the Roman soldiers. No, he went out on his own accord because he knows Pilate has no authority over him. The Jews have no authority over him. The Roman soldiers have no authority over him. He knows This is His hour. He said to the crowds just a few days earlier in John 12, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus knew He would be rejected by His people. He knew He would be rejected by Rome and put to death according to the will of God. 
He knew that Isaiah 53 was written about him that says, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He knew this. And he said, and he knew that he would not be uh, put to death by stoning. He knew it would be by crucifixion. And he submits himself to the Lord's will. And so when criminals were sentenced to crucifixion in those days, they would fight and they would plead for mercy and they would scream because they knew the pain and the agony that was coming. But Jesus here remained silent. And it says that He went out willfully with the soldiers. He said back in John 10, 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves Me because I lay My life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from Me. But I lay it down of My own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from My Father. And it says that He went out bearing His own cross. This would have been the cross beam. The horizontal piece that the criminals had to carry up the hill to their place of crucifixion and they would uh, fasten it to the, to the wrist of the criminal. Either by tying it to their wrist or by driving nails through the wrist into the cross beam. And then they would fasten the cross beam to uh, the vertical beam or the tree which was already waiting for them and had already been set up. And so the other Gospels say that Simon of Cyrene was made to carry Jesus' Jesus's cross up the hill, but John says that Jesus went out bearing His own cross. So do we have a contradiction here? No, we don't. The idea that John would be oblivious to what the other Gospel writers had been circulating for decades is absolutely uh, ridiculous. And so what's happening here? Well, we have to understand that the Gospels are historical narratives with a theological perspective. And, and the Gospel writers have theological purposes. And so John highlights throughout the entire Gospel that God has divinely ordained the Son's death and that the Son has willfully submitted to the Father's plan. It's been a theme that has run throughout the Gospel. And so he puts the attention on Jesus' bearing His own cross. And so when we harmonize the Gospels, it seems that what has happened is that Jesus, when He was condemned to death, was beaten again and scourged, although He had already been flogged once, so severely that He could not carry His own cross the entire way. And He collapses under the pressure of this 30 to 40 pound cross beam. And Simon of Cyrene has to carry it up the hill. Before someone was crucified, they were beaten nearly to death so that by the time they got nailed to the cross, they had very little life left to give. And Jesus was probably beaten more severely than any criminal. Why? Because He's being charged with making Himself a king. And so Jesus, we know from the Gospels, the Gospel writers tell us that they put a crown of thorns on His head and they took a reed or a scepter and mocking Him and they smote Jesus on the head while He had this crown of thorns on His brow, driving the crown of thorns into His head and inflicting major head trauma. 
So Jesus went out willfully after this, bearing his own cross, but at some point became unable to bear it. And so they forced Simon to carry it the rest of the way. But again, John's aim is not so much to highlight the suffering of Christ, although he does, but to highlight Jesus' willful submission to the Father. And so he points out the fact that Jesus bore his own cross. Jesus' obedience to the Father meant carrying his own cross to death. And here's the thing. He demands the same thing from each and every one of us. This is essential to the Christian life. Mark 10.34 If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Follow him to death. God has given each one of us a cross to carry. And he has called each one of us to die with Christ. Die to what? To being in charge. To calling our own shots. To making our own personal interest the center of our universe. To dying to ourselves for the sake of loving others. For the sake of following Him. He's called us no matter the cost to take up our cross and to follow Him. To take up our cross and lose our life. And this is an individual call. You cannot bear the cross of your spouse. You cannot bear the cross of your parents. You cannot bear the cross of your community. Jesus says in Luke 14.27, whoever does not bear his own cross cannot come after me and be my disciple. Now, let me land here for a moment because this has been a point of contention in the church at large historically. And still today, this uh, garners uh, uh, a conflict of, of thinking regarding how personal or how how communal Christian discipleship should be. And I think there are two pitfalls, pitfalls that we need to watch out for. Number one is just an overly personal and individualized view of the Christian life. This has been prevalent the last 150 years or so with the rise of revivalism and the rise of decisionism and the altar call and all of this. And I've seen the bad fruits of this. I have felt the bad fruits of this in my own soul. And I have had the privilege uh, to sit across the table with many people who have struggled, who are haunted by the fact that they can't look back into time and, and know with certainty that they were sincere when they prayed the sinner's prayer when they were a kid. How do I know I'm saved? How do I know I meant it when I was eight? And it haunts them to this day. And you, you try to point them out to look and we say, we see fruits, we see the objective reality of Christ in you, but it's such a struggle because there's a certainty that is desired that is based on the standard of feeling and not objective truth. And many of us feel the effects of this, don't we? We don't sing with joy because we feel unworthy, as if we could be worthy. We, we, we sin and we keep ourselves from God until we feel like we've cleaned ourselves up, as if we could clean ourselves up. We, we don't commit good works. We don't carry good things out because we judge our motives and fear that our motives are wrong, so we don't do good works. Then, on the other hand, You can have an overly communal 
an overly covenantal view of the Christian life where it's basically, you're just in because you're in. Because someone told you you were in. And there are some who believe that if a person affirms the Trinity and will recite the Apostles' Creed in public, that that person is a Christian. And that the marks of discipleship are to participate in the Christian worship services alone. And while there is much good in recovering the communal and the covenantal aspects of the Christian life, this can quickly go overboard and become dangerous. It runs the risk of creating a nominalism and a shallow, crossless Christianity. Jesus bore His own cross and He calls us to bear our own cross. This is why, brothers and sisters, it's so important to have a robust understanding of what all of the New Testament teaches regarding Christian discipleship. This is why we must do exegesis, which is where we allow the text to determine the rules and the text to determine the outcomes and to determine the results and not eisegesis, which is coming to the text and forcing on the text our own biases and traditions and preconceived notions. Now look at verse 18. It says, There they crucified Him, and with Him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So they led Jesus Christ to a place outside the city called Golgotha or Calvary, and they crucify Him along with two other criminals. Yet, Jesus is in the middle, likely to highlight His death. Because, remember, He is being charged with making Himself a king. And so Craig Keener says that Jesus was crucified with two others is not surprising, given the propaganda value of public executions during festivals when Jerusalem's crowds were the highest. So remember the context here. This is happening on Friday, Uh, before the Passover week, where all sorts of Jews, thousands of Jews, were in Jerusalem to celebrate a week-long feast called the Passover week, or the Passover feast, and there were thousands of travelers there to partake. And so this was a prime time for for the Romans to flex their muscles and to show all the Jews, hey Jews, don't think about revolting, or this will happen to you. It's going to be you hanging on a cross. Don't even think about it while you're here at this feast. This is what happens when you threaten Pax Romana. And Jesus, in fulfillment of Isaiah 53.12, is numbered with the transgressors and made to be a public spectacle. And in verse 19, Pilate writes an inscription which describes the charge or the crime that the criminal was crucified for and he puts it on a placard or a title and he nails it to the cross and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And look at what it says in verse 20. Many of the Jews, listen, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So hundreds of Jews were in Jerusalem for this feast and they would have walked by and seen these three men hanging on crosses and they would have seen one in the middle, maybe higher than the others, with a placard up on that cross that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. 
thousands of people would have seen this. And the Jewish leaders say in verse 21, uh, Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate responds, what I have written, I have written. And Pilate responds, what does that make you think of? In an almost scripture-like fashion, it is written. And so we've seen over the past few weeks that God is sovereign even over the mouth and the hand of pagan kings. Yet, in Pilate's mind, this is his way of taunting the Jews and getting back at them and humiliating them and getting revenge on them for the political stunt that they just pulled and putting Pilate between a rock and a hard place and saying, look, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. And they essentially blackmail Pilate into crucifying Jesus Christ. And so again, as we saw last week, the Jews have completely rejected Jesus as their king, and so they don't want the placard to say, King of the Jews. That's humiliating to them. They want it to say, this man said, I'm the King of the Jews. But Pilate will have none of it, and he keeps it in the same place in order to humiliate the Jews during their biggest feast in a sense to say, look, this is your king, Jews. This, this guy that I just beat to a bloody pulp, hanging on a cross, who I don't even see as a threat, this is your king. And essentially saying, you'll never have your own land again. Caesar is your king and your only king. He, he humiliates them. And while that may be Pilate's motive for writing the charge the way he did, from a theological perspective, we see the irony again, don't we? Pilate has written 100% truth on this placard. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. God has worked even Pilate's evil intentions according to His divine purpose and will perfectly. Pilate believes he has simply crucified a Jewish man and he believes he is taunting the Jews by writing what he wrote on the placard. But in reality, God has lifted up His Son so that all who look upon Him will believe and have eternal life and be saved. And Pilate wrote it in Aramaic, which was the common language of the Jews. He wrote it in Latin which was the language of the Romans and the officials and the soldiers, and he wrote it in Greek, which was the common language for all the people of the Mediterranean world. It was the trade language of the day. And so whatever Pilate's intentions were, he wanted to communicate it not only to the Jews, but to everybody who had come to Jerusalem to see. To the whole world. Yet in reality, God was communicating His plan of salvation, not only to the Jews, but to the whole world. And so as the Jews looked on, and as the Roman soldiers looked on, and as those coming from all over the known world looked on, God was speaking from the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus back in John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Remember back in Numbers 21, 
when the, when the people sinned and God sent serpents to the people and they were biting the people and people were dying and they cry out to Moses and the Lord says to Moses, make a fiery serpent and attach it to a pole and lift it up and anybody who looks on it, they'll be healed. Well, Jesus knows that this story is a foreshadowing of what God would do in His day when He would lift up the sun and anybody who would look upon Him and believe would be healed of their broken human condition and transformed and made new. He says in John 12, 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. None of this is a surprise. It has all been worked out perfectly according to God's divine providence. And being lifted up denotes crucifixion, literally lifted up off the ground. And it also denotes glorification and exaltation. And you get this sense as you're reading through the Gospel of John that Jesus closely associates His death with His glorification and with His exaltation. The the two cannot be separated. He is glorified in His death for sinners. And God goes on to raise Jesus from the dead and then brings Him into heaven where He now reigns at His right hand. And as He reigns, He draws His elect from all over the world to Himself to believe, to look upon Him and have salvation and eternal life. We begin to see Christ draw the nations to Himself in the book of Acts. And He is still drawing the nations to Himself through the same means today. This also has applications for believers living the Christian life. If you are struggling with doubt or some internal struggle of the soul, look to Him who has been lifted up and exalted. Take your eyes off of yourself and look up. Look up. Look out. He has been lifted up. He has been exalted on high. All these passerbys in Jerusalem would have had to look up to see the placard and what it said. They would have had to have gazed Jesus off of, gazed at Jesus while he was off of the ground. In his lowest moment, Jesus Christ is exalted above all. It reminds me of Psalm 24 9. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. So many Christians live their lives. I mean, we struggle with this. We, we're, we're so tempted to live beaten down and discouraged and, and defeated and disheartened because of our remaining sin, because of our suffering, because of the circumstances around us. I mean, we, we functionally live sometimes as if we are defeated. Although the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. And some of this is spiritual warfare, but a lot of it is that we just so overly look inward when the Bible repeatedly says, look out and look up. And that's what we must do. And as we do that, we will heed to Hebrews 12, 1-2, where it says, lay also aside every weight and sin which clings so closely 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Where does your eyes need to be? On Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. We are to look to the One who, who has been exalted as a result of His suffering. And knowing that if we are in Him by faith, we will also be exalted with Him. The church must have a robust and rich theology of suffering. We must. It, suffering is such an integral part of the Christian life. You cannot separate the two. To be a Christian is to be a sufferer. But suffering acts as the preliminary for glorification. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans 8.17. And if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him. Why? So that we may also be glorified with Him. Jesus was glorified through suffering and we will be glorified with Him through our suffering with him. See, Pilate wanted to draw attention to Jesus. He puts Jesus in the middle, probably raises him up a little bit higher than the two other criminals, and he attaches the placard at the top of the cross so that everyone would look and have fear and tremble at the Rome, at the Roman government. But in reality, God was drawing attention to his son. God was and still is drawing people to the Son. Now let's look at these last two verses, 23 and 24. Uh, it was a custom for the Roman soldiers, after crucifying a person, uh, to take their share of whatever the criminal might have. And so here there are four soldiers, and they begin to divide Jesus' clothing up among themselves, and it says they took his garments and divided them into four parts. So that could mean that they took the outer garment, which was like a robe, and literally divided it at the seams and, and gave it to the, each of the four. Uh, but from the reading I've done, I think it's more likely, however, that Jesus' garments included four pieces. So that you had a robe, probably sandals, probably a belt, and possibly even a head covering. And so that would give each soldier a piece of clothing to take, but he also had a tunic. And the tunic was a, a, a garment that you would wear close to the skin and then you would put something on top of it. And it was worth something, something and it was woven from top to bottom. And so they didn't want to tear it because tearing it would essentially render it useless. And so they cast lots for the tunic. And John describes this tunic with a lot of detail. He says it's seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. And John's Gospel is full of symbolism and double meaning and irony. And as we have seen, when we get details like this, it's good to pause and ask, is John trying to communicate something to us? And so there have been a few attempts throughout church history to sort of allegorize the tunic. And I think by and large, most of them uh, fall short of uh, proper exegesis. But one possibility that I, that I do think has textual warrant is that John wants us to think back to John 13. What happens in John 13? It says that Jesus removes his outer garments 
and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. And we know that he was ultimately showing them symbolically what he was about to do on the cross in dying for them so that they would be, be clean for eternity. And so here we see from the perspective of the cross how Jesus has humbled himself and served his disciples. And his clothes have been removed from him as he is being humiliated on the cross and hangs and dies for his people. And so the foot washing scene in John chapter 13 is symbolic for what Jesus is about to actually do in John 19. John Calvin, in commenting on this verse, says, Christ was stripped of His garments that He might clothe us with righteousness, that His naked body was exposed to the insults of men, that we may appear in glory before the judgment seat of God. Nevertheless, what is clear is that this is a historical moment where these soldiers actually divide up Christ's clothing And in so doing, they fulfill ancient prophecy. This was to fulfill the Scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This quotation comes from Psalm 22.18. And Psalm 22 is extremely important to the crucifixion narrative. According to one scholar, uh, Psalm 22 is quoted or alluded to 14 times in the Gospels, Jesus quotes from it, from verse 1 as he is hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a psalm about the suffering, but the eventual triumph of David, yet it finds its messianic fulfillment in Jesus Christ. As I close here, in order to drive this point about God's providence, over the events of the crucifixion home, consider what is really happening here. These four soldiers who have no real skin in the game, they're just merely at work. And they're casting lots for the clothes and they're probably bored. Yet, as they sit around and wait for Jesus and the other two criminals to die, they are doing exactly what God prophesied about them a thousand years prior. As they divide the king's garments among themselves, they are fulfilling ancient prophecy. Guys, let this this drive you to having an accurate view of God. The Scriptures do not reveal to us a limited, weak God who wants to do things but can't. The Scripture from the very beginning to the very end reveals to us a God who has a will and who has the power to carry out His will. He sustains. He creates. He sovereignly governs everything from viruses that can't even be seen to the hearts of evil kings, to the very details of His own Son's crucifixion. And He governs it all in such a way that His purposes are fulfilled perfectly. That's what it means for our God to be omnipotent. It means that He can do anything that He wants to do. He has the power to carry out everything that He wants to carry out and nothing stops Him. Do you have a view of God that allows for that? Do you have a category for God's divinely inspiring David a thousand years earlier 
to write a psalm primarily about his own life, yet it would find its fulfillment in precise historical detail a thousand years later in the crucifixion of his own son. You know, do you think these four Roman soldiers left their barracks when they came on shift thinking, we're about to fulfill an ancient prophecy that King David spoke a thousand years ago? No. But yet God knew from the foundation of the world the names of these four soldiers who would crucify Christ and divide up His garments as He hung there for all to see and suffered for our sins. In this crucifixion narrative, we see that God works the greatest evil for the greatest good. It was interesting this week as I was uh, finishing the sermon, I thought, wow, all, all these years we've been working through the Gospel of John and probably over a hundred sermons at this point, ultimately moving toward Christ's crucifixion. And it landed on me that when uh, Pastor John Mark started in the Gospel of John, I didn't know him. And I didn't know any of you, maybe except for a few of you from BCM vaguely. So I went back on sermon audio and I found that the first sermon was preached. It was an introduction on July 31st, 2016. And I thought, in July 2016, uh, Molly and I had been married for barely a year. We had just uh, brought McKenna into the world. She was a couple months old. And we were living in my grandmother's house in Alabama. I was pursuing a master's degree in English, teaching at a public school. And, and uh, we were in a very different church setting that didn't look at all like what we do here, a very charismatic, influential, influential world. Uh, and although I was starting to be introduced to the doctrines of grace, I did not think I would be a member at the Cross Church. And I didn't in my wildest dreams believe I would be a pastor of a church who would eventually go on to have in front of its building in big black bold letters, Reformed and Baptistic. And it landed on me that God knew all along that I would be in this pulpit six years later preaching on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He has been sovereign over every detail of my life. And He's been sovereign over every detail of yours. We just have to allow ourselves to have a view of God that the Bible reveals. This is freedom for finite people. This is rest for the anxious heart. This is the backdrop with which we make sense of our suffering and our sickness and all the evil in the world. We have a God who promises that He makes all things work together for good for those who love Him. And not only does He promise it, He has the power to accomplish it. And He always accomplishes it. Amen. Let me transition this now to the table. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've received Him by faith and been baptized and you're a member of this church or of another, I want to encourage you to come to the table with these things in mind knowing that Jesus has been lifted up for you and that He is sovereign over your life. And I want to encourage you to come down and get the elements with joy. 
And if, if you're not a believer and you've not been baptized, we would ask you to refrain. But in your red bulletin, there are some prayers you can pray to make this a meaningful time for you. So take a few moments there in your seat to pray. And when you're ready, uh, come and get the elements and return to your seat and we'll take it together. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your goodness, for your great good providence over our lives. Lord, we, we say to you, whatever you ordain is right. You ordain the death of your own Son that we might live. And so I pray that as we go from here, that you would help us to have renewed minds in the truth and that we could live consistent with the biblical reality of who you are and who we are and what you are capable of and what you are doing in the world. Help us now as we come to the table to eat of the meal with joy, that you would be glorified. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.